Welcome to Fight Back Radio, a production of fightbacknews.org, taking you to the heart of the people's struggles. I'm your host, Richard Berg, and today we have a, a guest who's an icon of the Chicano National Liberation Movement, uh, Carlos Montes. Uh, Carlos uh, was the main spokesperson or one of the spokespersons for the Brown Berets in its early days. He was the Minister of Information, but uh, led walkouts in Los Angeles back in the uh, late 60s. And was, uh, you know, you'll hear his story here. I'm not going to do a long introduction because he actually was at the heart of the Chicano national movement um, for most of his life. And uh, so as he tells uh, the story of uh, whether it's uh, the Chicano moratorium or the um, uh, more recent uh, mega marches, all these things, he was at the center of of all of them. So you'll you'll hear about his life uh, as well as the Chicano national movement, which are so deeply intertwined. Um, we also have something special today, I think, uh, for our, our outro. Instead of me uh, uh, just uh, you know doing an uh, outro, we're having a, a guest who led walkouts uh, last year in Chicago at the Little Village Lawndale High School. And uh, uh, Angel uh, Nadaranjo is uh, a new activist and a senior in high school this year and uh, is a leader of an organization called uh, Little Village Lawndale Fightback and also a member of the Freedom Road Socialist Organization. And so uh, I think those things you'll find interesting. Uh, if you like this uh, episode, uh, please share it with your friends, uh, you know, promote it on social media. Uh, if you want to reach us, you can, uh, or me, you can reach us at uh, richard.fightbackradio uh, at gmail.com. So uh, I'm not going to make a long introduction. Uh, I think we have a good episode. So here is uh, Carlos Montes. Okay, so welcome, Carlos Montes. Uh, it's great to have you on Fight Back Radio. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with and, you. And uh, this is a treat for our listeners. Uh, you're one of the giants of the <laughs> Chicano liberation movement. We're glad to have you here. And so uh, let's let's dig right into it. Uh, you're one of the founding members of uh, the Brown Berets. And uh, yes. so for our listeners that don't know what that is, what was the Brown Berets? Who were they and why did they come to be? Yeah, the Brown Berets are a group of young Chicanos and Chicanos that were angry of the because of, of the condition we lived in. And we decided to organize the Brown Berets, brown and proud, and we're going to march and take action against police killings for education against the Vietnam War. So, you know, we got together and we started wearing the Brown Beret. We got Brown Beret, you know, like I said, because it's brown to promote brown pride, uh, cultural awareness, and, uh, you know, to know about our, to learn about our history. Okay, and so do you... And through doing that, um, it seems like you were, uh, you know, mostly young people, maybe a little more militant, and in uh, a break from some of the past uh, Chicano leaders. Maybe. No, that's true. That's true. We were making a break in several ways. We said we're going to need to take direct action. We need to protest. We need to organize. And we didn't advocate violence, but we advocated self-defense. The other reason way we broke is that we were saying we want self-determination. We don't want assimilation, we don't want acculturation, we want self-determination. And we acknowledged also our indigenous uh, uh, background as Chicanos, right, coming from Mexico and in the Southwest. So, and politically, we said we want a Chicano power. We, had, we were the Chicano power advocates. Where the past generation, they did some awesome work, you know, civil rights, voter registration, get 
get people elected, but we were saying we want more than that. We want economic and political power. We want revolution. For, in order for Chicanos to be free, we need to have a revolution in this country where Chicanos can have self-determination. African-Americans also have self-determination. And all working people are free from the exploitation of their labor by U.S. imperialism. You know, when I look at the pictures back in those days of the, the Brown Berets and you and uh, some of your comrades from those days, uh, the look reminds me a lot of the Black Panther Party. Were you influenced by them at all at the time, or did you have any work with them at that well, time? Well, yes. No, I myself was influenced by the Black Liberation Movement, because when I came from Mexico, I lived in South L.A., where it was Chicano Black, and the older whites are already moving out. So yes, the Black Panther Party, uh, uh, it was uh, Bunchy Carter and John Huggins came to East LA to talk about working together to unite to promote black and brown unity. So I, I got to work with the Black Panther Party. I got to meet Bobby Seale and of course, uh, later on, John and Omar Pratt. Of course, we knew Elrich Kleber, but in the 60s, uh, we worked together. You know, we support each other's uh, demonstrations. They actually came to a protest uh, when we were arrested for these deli walkouts. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about the walkouts? This is, uh, uh, you know, made famous by a HBO movie, and yeah, right. uh, I, I saw you, you were portrayed. In fact, if I'm right, I think you had a, a, a short role at the end playing your, the father of you or something like that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. The parents come in and help the students at the very end. We were walking, right? Yeah. But what was that about? So why were people walking out? What was? Uh, yeah, what yeah. Well, like I said, the Brumberries were part of the Chicano emerging Chicano movement of the late '60s. And many of the issues we worked on, one of the biggest issues was equality for edu in education. You know, our schools were overcrowded, old, racist curriculum, uh, corporal punishment. Uh, the they channeled the woman into home economics and typing and the men into uh, ROTC, as well as the... Um, the uh, auto auto parts or the more uh, industrial arts, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that bad. I'm just saying that they totally ignored uh, us having access to college courses or a quality education and the racist curriculum and, and the U.S. history. So the whole thing with the, with the walkouts is that we uh, finally had enough. And after months of organizing and community meetings, we organized East LA walkouts in March of 1968 where for two weeks, over 10,000 students walked out from all the East LA Chicano high schools. And that put us on the map. Wow, I guess, made national, yeah. yeah, it made national news. You know, they finally figured that, they always call us a sleeping giant has a walk, right? The sleeping <laughs> giant finally woke up, right? <laughs> yeah, but that, that was, you know, part of the, uh, the contribution to the long history of uh, Chicanos fighting for uh, liberation and equality, you know. I'm part of the decade of the 60s, uh, but the movement didn't start there. You know, yeah. there's there's a long history of our right, people. Of course, yeah. But the demand was Chicano studies, you know, uh, Chicano <laughs> teachers, you know, open campuses, better food, because they used to lock up the campus, you know, you couldn't go in and out and eliminate corporal punishment, because I got swatted, you know, I got slapped uh, with a three foot ruler on my hand just because I got a drink of water, you know, oh, we would really? get swatted. Yeah, it was it was bad. Oh my and we had a, also a very high dropout rate, or we called it push out rate. More than 50% of the students 
did not graduate. You know, they wow. were pushed out. Mm-hmm. So how, how did you, I mean, I know 10,000 people don't just walk out by magic. Somebody had to organize that. <laughs> and so uh, it sounds like the Brown Berets were in the front of that or in the, in the leadership. So what, uh, what kinds of things did you do to get people interested or to get students, you know, high school students to say, okay, you know, I've had enough. I, I, I agree with you and this might work. Or what were your tactics? Mm-hmm. Right, in preparation for the walkouts, right? Like I said, it took months, you know, community meetings. Also, the Brown Berets and the students with South Castro organized student strike committees in each high school where they met, right? And we came up with a list of demands. Prior to that, though, the students did a survey asking the students what do they think about conditions in the school. And out of that came the demands. And the demands were presented to the school board and of course, the school board said, we'll get back to you, we'll study it. And, and I want to point out that one of my first political activities was getting a, a Dr. Julian Nava elected to the school board. Even before I joined the Brown Berets, I did some voter education, voter turnout, right? So we had one Chicano on the school board. So the Brown Berets, what we also did, we went around talking, agitating, you know, passing out flyers, saying... Did he stick with you, the one guy you had, or did he sell what? Did he stick with you through this, or did he sell you out? Who, uh, well, uh, Dr. Julian. Well, you know what? He was supportive of us. He would listen to us, and he said he was trying to do more from the inside. And no, he didn't sell us out. He uh, he supported us, uh, but supported us, you know, in a... um, academic kind of way he was doctor now right? <laughs> not in a not in a forceful way right but so, uh so so we had strike committee we had meetings with the students with the teachers you know what are we going to do present the demands and finally you know we had a meeting you know uh, a couple of days before the walkout said let's set the date this is going to be the date march the 6 10 a.m so our role as Brown Berets was to go into the school, yell, walk out, while the students then were going to stand up in the classroom. And we had other, other people uh, meeting with the principal to, to, um, to divert them. We ran into Lincoln High School, me and uh, Richard uh, uh, Vigil, also known as Mangas Coloradas, the students got up, started walking out. It was beautiful, you know. There's pictures that the police took of us outside of Lincoln High School marching. Oh, that's that's exciting. But now you had ten thousand people walking out of the high schools. You made national news. Did you win, or did or did they? Uh... No, we won. We won because after that, Lincoln went to Roosevelt, went to Garfield, and then you know we, the people were arrested. Uh, students were beat up. Out of the whole struggle, we did win. We did win uh, ethnic studies. We wanted to build, they were going to build another high school, open campuses, uh, open restrooms, better food, uh, ethnic studies, uh, access to college education. We did win many, many things. Yeah, it, because it was because we walked out in protest. They call them East LA walkouts, East LA blogs. They're actually students going on strike day after day, rallying and marching. So yeah, it, it took it took us the students to walk out to to win things. Yeah, that that was an education too, I'm sure, for the high school kids. Yeah. Uh, well, let me let me ask you. Uh, there was repression though after this too. Am I right that the the East LA 13 that's related to the walkouts? Could you talk yes, a little bit about yes, that? Yes, yes, absolutely. What happened is that the the district attorney convened a secret grand jury. 
and gave testimony from uh, police and alleged witnesses and came up with the, the, the charges that it was we were disrupting the peace, disrupting the schools, but we conspired to do it, which makes it a felony. So we were arrested for conspiracy to disrupt the schools, disrupt the peace, which would have, normally would have been a misdemeanor, right? So it was a secret grand jury, so they, they came out with the indictment, and me and several Marines were in Washington, D.C. during the Poor People's Campaign. So we so were with Dr. King, right? The Poor yeah. People's Campaign? Of, right, right. Some of the ones that were in L.A., they were raided, they were arrested. Uh, Sal Castro, Moctezuma Sparsa, they raided the office of La Raza newspaper where they arrested Elias Arlisco, the editor. So we heard about it, you know, me and Ralph Ramirez were in D.C., so it was repression. We, you know, we faced repression, the state repression, the district attorney, to try to squash and jail us. We had, you know, six, seven different felonies. You know, three to five years apiece. Wow, that's that's for a young person. That's that's a scary thing. What did you do? Well, we fought back. You know, I mean, I was in D.C. at the time. When we got back, we were arrested. We bailed out. We organized a campaign. Free the East LA 13, Los Trece, you know. So we did a campaign. We had a lawyer, Oscar Seta Costa, a team of lawyers. We raised money. We had protests and rallies. And uh, the lawyers, though, they challenged the constitutionality of the indictment, saying that we were basically uh, a freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, that we had the right to protest. And eventually that case was thrown out and all the charges were dropped. After the, the walkouts, what, what, are the, what was the next steps for the Brown Berets? We st had started organizing youth and car clubs against police killings, especially the car clubs cruising in Whittier Boulevard in, in East LA or in urban LA. And I grew up getting harassed and stopped by the cops, you know, stopping you harassing, searching your car for no valid reason other than maybe the, they said that the uh, license plate light was broke off, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh! So yes, yes. Well, it's, we can't have that, I suppose. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, but, but what happened is that you know we 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 were the first in the in the winter of '67. We organized a protest at the East LA the East LA Sheriff Station because a young man had been killed. They said he committed suicide, but the autopsy revealed that he was beat. So we did a protest there, and this is even before the walkouts, by the way. So we had worked on, on uh, organizing car clubs, the gangs, the youth saying, know your rights, you know, they can't harass you, they can't stop you, know your rights, file a complaint, fight back. And we fought against police brutality, right? And the other thing we started doing is educating ourselves about promoting uh, uh, unity with blacks. You know, we were invited by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference to go to Washington, D.C to join the Poor People's Campaign. So this to us was very uh, awakening because we realized that poor people included poor Appalachians from the the Appalachia, the, what is it, Tennessee, Kentucky area. Yeah, right? that's right, yeah. Yeah, and the South and Navajos were Arizona, Puerto Rican, blacks, and we're all together for two months. So we realized that it wasn't just uh, oppression against Chicanos, it was against Native Americans, Blacks, poor working people that we needed to unite and that the enemy is really 
the super rich, the 1%, and it became politicized to realize that it was capitalism or U.S. imperialism oppressing us. So we started learning and reading Frantz Fanon, uh, the Black Panther Party gave us the Little Red Book. You know, we learned about Ho Chi Minh and General Giap. And in the beginning, we were a little, you know, uh, you know, we still had the hangover, the uh, the hangover, I guess, from the Red Scare of the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know. But we started the Vietnam War politicized and realized that, look, if the Vietnamese want self-termination, they want socialism in their country, fine, you know, we'll support it. So we went over, you know, uh, we became politicized by the Vietnam War. What primarily in the beginning, because some Brambury and youth that we grew up with were being drafted. And when we got out of high school, we were being brainwashed by the media. They had a movie, The Green Berets with John Wayne, and it came out on the radio every 30 minutes, the fighting men of the Green Berets, you know, and they had the recruiting center in East LA, you know, Army, Marines, everybody recruit. And then out of, out of the ROTC, they would channel people into the military and the draft, you call it the poverty draft, you know. So you became anti-war activists. Yes, yes. So and you saw, you know, you saw the connections of the different peoples. That's, yeah, that, that's powerful. That's powerful. Um, so, so yeah, how did you organize around that? What, what kinds of things did you do? Uh, well, good question. What happened is that we learned about a study by Dr. Ralph Guzman at UCLA that showed that Chicanos from the Southwest had a high casualty rate in Vietnam, higher than proportion to our population. And I forget the exact numbers, but... So we said, wow, you know, that, that really got us mad and pissed off. You know, the, one of the guys that I knew, Ismael Valdez, was a Yale king at Garfield High School. He was killed in Vietnam, and I knew him. He was a real nice guy, and I was surprised that, he, well, he got drafted. You know, I was thinking, why did he join? Probably just got drafted, right? And then uh, some of the guys that went to, uh, element, uh, excuse me, uh, Hollenbeck Middle School and, and partially Roosevelt, the State Street boys, they were uh, really good athletes at football, right? And they joined the uh, Marines in the buddy system. And the buddy system says, if you join and your buddy joins, we'll put you in the same unit. And four of them did. Now they survived, but they came back, you know, and I'm talking about guys that were good at football, the quarterback, the, mm -hmm. the center, you know, and, um, they came back uh, alive, but traumatized, as shrapnel, uh, disabled, you know, and um, I remember... So that uh, personalizes it for you, so yeah, you, these yeah, are your actual did. people you know right. that are being yeah. affected by this, or, you know, maybe dying, and so the, the statistics aren't just outrageous statistics, they're also people you know are part of that statistic. Absolutely, you know, and Rocky, that was his nickname, the big, tall, husky... Chicano, who was center, showed me his book from the Marines. A big old, beautiful, white bound book. And he opened it up and it all it showed all the atrocities he was involved in and what they did. That to me shocked me, you know. Yeah. But I could tell that he was traumatized. And then the other guy, Andy, uh, was uh, has shrapnel. And I would see him at restaurants in Bull Heights and I talked to them and they were kind of didn't want to talk about it, but I, you know, they would tell me about their injuries, you know. Well, anyway, Rocky, you know, eventually we tried to get him into college. 
He eventually died of an overdose of heroin. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and oh I gosh. think it was directly attributed oh to being gosh. in Vietnam and the atrocities he saw or committed. No, it's, it's, it's a hard thing. Uh, and, and many people came back and, and you know, committed suicide and other things. It's absolutely it's a, it's horrific that what that war did. Um, but you were organizing, uh, it led to something called the Chicano Moratorium. Right, right. What, so what is that? Right, okay, so that leads me to the finally the, the you know the, the dropout excuse me the, the casualty rate so the Bromberg had a meeting and we said we're gonna organize a Chicano moratorium and I looked at moratorium what is that oh the moratorium stop war okay yeah let's do a Chicano moratorium why not so you know we put the call out we put a flyer out and we said we're gonna have a Chicano moratorium in East LA of course and on December 20th 1969 we had the first of a series of Chicano moratoriums. And the Brownberries were the ones that organized it. It started, and I have pictures of it. I have pictures of us marching, you know, from Evergreen Park and Bull Heights to Sunnel Park in East LA. We had a march, we had a rally, we had speakers, and we said, you know, stop the war in Vietnam. And we highlighted the high casualty rate. We started saying it was racist, oppression, you know, the poverty draft targeting Chicanos and blacks. And it was successful, you know, and and um, out of that, we organized another one in, in the uh, March of 70, and then the big one, August 29, 1970, where over 30,000 Chicanos marched down East L.A., denouncing the war in Vietnam, and marched to Laguna Park, and it was brutally attacked by the combined forces of the LAPD, the sheriffs, in coordination with the FBI. Well, you guys were being effective, I think. So you were yeah. you were raising consciousness. You were mm -hmm. actually changing uh, community attitudes uh, about what was going on, and so you were attacked. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we found out later on that the J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, did not want the Chicano movement to unite with the black, with the wider anti-war movement. So they wanted to squash the growing militant Chicano movement united with the anti-war movement. So not only were they spying, but they had the uh, LEPD and the sheriffs already waiting for us at near uh, what's called now Salazar Park. And they used a small incident at a, at a liquor store to, to come in and, and, uh, and, and what do you call it, come in in military tactics and confront the people and started beating and tear gassing hundreds of people. And they eventually they killed Ruben Salazar, who was a director of KMEX news station, as well as a well-known LA Times reporter. That got a lot of press. That that, yeah. you know, that created a, a bit of a stir. Um, but the repression, um, it, it continued. Uh, um, tell me a little bit. I'm going to move on to the Biltmore Six. What, what, what's what's that? Now that was you guys had been, uh, mm -hmm. you know, again being effective, I think, and. Uh, um, uh, but that was another case where, you know, because you were effective, they, they, they came after you, I think. Yes, you're right. Okay, before the, uh, before the moratorium, because the moratorium was December 69, in the spring of 69, uh, you know, unfortunately, Ronald Reagan had gotten elected to the governor of California. He did so many bad things. But, <laughs> but he, he wanted to cut back on social programs, on welfare, uh, against bilingual education, against uh, programs that would help poor working people, especially Chicanos and Blacks, right? 
And then all of a sudden, uh, the superintendent of education was part of his group of Republican, Max Rafferty organized what they call the, the New Horizons Conference, Nuevas Vistas Conference on Education for Mexican-Americans, right? Which to us was a slap in the face, it was an insult, because uh, they were doing everything they could to stop bilingual education and ethnic studies, mm -hmm. right? So for them to hold this conference, we decided to do a protest, you know? And when I say we're talking about Brown Berets and the student groups at East LA College called La Vida Nueva, so we had a meeting at, at East LA College, you know, we're going to have a picket sign, we're going to pick it outside, we're going to go inside, disrupt the dinner. We had a plan of uh, how to protest, right? And sure enough, the day that it happened, you know, we showed up to the Billmore Hotel. We had a picket line outside. And then uh, we, some of us got inside and, and got up, started doing the Chicano hand clap to disrupt, mm -hmm. and they were let out and arrested. The rest of us were picketing outside in front of the, front of the hotel, and we also got into the lobby. And they had security all over. They had state police, they had LEPD, and they also had the fire department already there because there were some fires set inside the hotel, right? And um, we tried to get around, you know, but they had the state police there, which because Governor Ronald Reagan was supposed to be there. So it was heavily guarded, right? And um, we didn't realize, but there was an undercover cop that had infiltrated the Brown Berets by the name of Fernando Sumaya. And, you know, and we did a security check on him, but he used his real name because we they called his high school. He goes, yeah, that's Fernando Sumaya. We didn't realize that he had joined the police academy and he was recruited by the intelligence unit, Public Disorder Intelligence, uh, PDID department to infiltrate the Brumbury. And he looked like a regular Chicano, had a tattoo, long hair, big mustache, you know, he dressed apart, right? And uh, that was his real name. And we went to his house, he had an apartment where he lived. And well, he set a fire inside the bathroom of the lobby of the Bilma Hotel, right? And when he did that, we thought he was just being crazy and militant. We said, what the hell, you're gonna burn us, don't do that, right? So we left, but there was other fires that had been set in the hotel, because you could see the smoke, you smell the smoke. And, and uh, the, the fire department was already there, as well as police, all over the hotel. So the police actually had set these fires. Yeah, the undercover police, Fernando Sumaya, set a fire that we know of because we saw him. The other fires, we don't know who, who did it, you know, but we suspect it was either him or other, other, uh, other provocateurs. And a provocateur is someone who joined an organization with the intent to disrupt it by causing trouble. And I want to point out that before that day, Fernando Sumaya always advocated violence. He always carried a gun and he always advocated, for example, let's go firebomb the Safeway uh, market because they're not boycotting grapes. And we would say, no, no, we're not going to do that. That's crazy. What we're going to do is boycott Safeway, pick it, and support the United Farm Workers and their union struggle by boycotting mm -hmm. grapes. But uh, he, he did convince two Brumbury members to go with them and firebomb uh, Safeway department store 
But when they got there to do it, they were already waiting for them, and they were arrested and beat up. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, yeah. So they, 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 they set you up, and then they arrest you. That's, that's terrible. Yeah, yeah. So, so what happened with the Biltmore Hotel is that they did another secret grand jury uh, where he gave testimony implicating 10 people that we had conspired to set fires up due to the protest, right? So again, we were arrested, 10 of us. But the first day in court, they dropped charges on four right away because it was ridiculous. There was no evidence. And they kept six people, uh, several Brown Berets and a couple of students uh, that were close to La Vida Nueva. And we were held over to go to court, you know, and eventually all of us were, were, uh, were uh, found not guilty to make a long, very long story short. So okay, um, uh, well, I mean that's that's good news. And so uh, um, eventually, what what happened to the Brown Berets? I mean, uh, this, this sounds like a difficult time to go through. I mean, with all this, uh, you were doing great things, but you were getting hit back too. And so uh, we're getting a lot of repression. I myself, being the minister of information, that I would have to speak at the rallies, was arrested and assaulted by the LAPD on the streets of Lincoln Heights and arrested. And when I was inside the county jail, I was assaulted by the sheriff inside, right? And uh, Sergeant uh, Lisa Vios from the Public Disorder Intelligence Division told me you, you were either going to get killed or spend the rest of your time in jail, right? And one time when we went to court for the Billmore case, I was inside in the courtroom, right? I was sitting in, in the courtroom and the other sergeant, Armas, A.A. Bull Armas, sat next to me and opened up his coat and put his hand on his gun and looked at me, you know. Oh he was in God. the courtroom, oh right? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, this was because Hernando Sumaya was testifying, right? So maybe they're saying, okay, we're here to protect them. I go, oh, my God, you know. Because by that time, Fernando Sumaya testified at a grand jury and, and, and said that we had caused these fires, right? And he was testifying against us at a preliminary hearing. What I did, I walked out to the phone booth to make a call to my job saying I'm going to be late. He followed me out there, and while I was making the call, he and another deputy busted the door to the phone booth, the wooden phone booth. Oh my gosh. And pulled me out and attempted to arrest me. Well, they did arrest me, but then the Brambury women were there, uh, Gloria Yanis, uh, Lorraine Escalante, and started yelling and trying to protect me, so they arrested Lorraine, and they so I got arrested in the courtroom lobby just because I was in a phone booth calling my my uh, employer. Oh my you know, Yeah, yeah. Oh and, my you gosh. know, they pulled my briefcase and looked into it. They arrested me. You know, um, so they arrested me for resisting arrest. So, so that's an example of what I was living through. I was going to court, you know, on, on false charges. I was being arrested. I was being harassed. And uh, I felt threatened for my life. So I went underground. I left the country. I went to Mexico. Wow. So um, I, I'm going to... Uh I'm going to have to invite you back because you have yeah, a yeah. rich history. But I, <laughs> yeah. And before this episode's over, I, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, more current things. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, I want to hear about, you know, you know, life in Mexico and obviously you're back here now. 
um, and uh, you know the mega marches and some other you know so much that you've been involved in. Um, so you, you, this is a, a ticket for you to come back to Fight Back Radio. Thank but, you. But, Thank uh, you. But um, let's talk a little bit. You know, right now you're working with uh, the the Central CSO or the Community Service Organization. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your work there and what's going on in uh, Los Angeles and with the yeah, CSO? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Central CSO Community Service Organization is a Chicano grassroots militant uh, democratic organization fighting against police killings of Chicanos and Blacks, fighting for public education against privatization, fighting for immigrant rights, demanding legalization for all, right? And also putting on events like May Day uh, in Ball Heights every year, and also the Chicano Moratorium to create a history and awareness against wars. And we organize, we work with families actually, since I'm retired, I have time to go meet with a mom or dad whose son had been killed, and we sit down with them, and. We help them organize a protest, make sure they get uh, counseling because of the trauma, that they get the proper legal support, and we unite, have them unite with the Centro CSO and other families. So right now we're fighting against LA, LA Sheriff's Department, Alex Villanueva, to get him out. He's up for election in June and then November general election, but we feel that elections are not the solution to, because even if we get another sheriff, they turn out to be just as bad. You know, the system is corrupt. The system is is violent and racist. So, we're so it's our, not a bad sheriff. It's that you need systemic change in uh, yeah. the Los Angeles Sheriff's Yes, department. absolutely. So our demand for community control of the police, we are, we've united with the Check the Sheriff Coalition, a wide united front of 70 different organizations that includes unions, families who have lost their sons, as well as organizations, you know, like the National Lawyers Guild, uh, Black Lives Matter LA, you know. So it's a broad coalition. Unite Local 11, SCIU, it's a broad coalition. We're demanding community control of police. In the form, we're asking the local county government to put on the ballot an amendment to the charter or the constitution of the county to give stronger oversight civilian control over the sheriff including the ability to remove a sheriff for violating the law. And it's called a charter amendment, and most people say, what the hell is a charter amendment? So we say, you know, it's the, the charter is the county constitution. We right. want to change it to implement community control. So we're in the middle of that battle right now. Uh, the, the, there is a civilian oversight commission that was established several years ago, but they only have subpoena power. And many times the sheriff, Villanueva, ignores the subpoena, but they have to take him to court to force him to come. So they don't have a lot of power over the, the sheriffs, right? So that's why this charter amendment would make the Civilian Oversight Commission a permanent part of the government of the county, because right now it's only temporary, and give them more uh, oversight power, including more power to the board of supervisors over the sheriff, including the ability to remove the sheriff for a violation of the law. So we're going to have that on the ballot in November of uh, this year, 2022, and we're going to do a campaign to get the vote out. But we're also saying, you know, that the deputy gangs that exist within the county sheriffs, I don't know how it is in other cities, 
What, what are deputy gangs? They're actual gangs of sheriffs that have their own initiation process. They have tattoos. They have their code of conduct. And to join into a gang, like uh, the East L.A. Sheriff's Station has those banditos, right? And their logo and their tattoo is a, a sombrero guy with a big mustache with two guns, you know, crossed over. And to join them, you have to have more arrests, be more physical, break bone, beat people up, and kill civilians. That's how you're initiated into this gang. It's a real gang, and uh, they're, they're brutal, they're assassins, and they unite within the station to run at the station and to bully and harass uh, other deputies that don't go along with it. And they've actually uh, beat up and attacked other deputies uh, that don't go along with this brutality. And there's other gangs in other stations, in the Compton Station, as well as uh, South LA Station. You have the uh, Executioners, the Grim Reaper. That These are actual gangs that commit illegal acts that violate the law, that break bones, false arrest, and kill people. Then they primarily kill blacks and Latinos. So part of this check the sheriff community control is we're demanding that the disbandment, the 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 band these um, gangs. The other day we were saying eradicate, obliterate them, arrest them, you know, do away with them. Because Sheriff Villanueva refuses to do that. He says they're just cliques, they're social clubs. And um, I have some two reliable independent sources that he joined the Banditos gang when he was working at the Stelly Sheriff Station in the early 90s. Oh my God. Yeah, and at his inauguration, he was sworn in as sheriff. He had a ceremony. Who did he have sit in the front row? Oh, the Banditos. Sheriffs from the East L.A. Sheriff's Station. Oh, my gosh. You know? Oh, boy. Yeah, so this guy's rogue. He's literally rogue. He attacks the board of supervisors. He attacked uh, Hilda Solis, one of our board members, calls her La Loca, call her oh. La Malinche. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. Now, he's totally undemocratic. He's going, he's kind of, somebody calls him the Trump of L.A. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he he's a, he's a, he wants more money for for more police, more jails versus. Oh. No, you programs. got some. We got yeah. some work to do. That. Yeah, we sure do. So we're part of this coalition, Center CSO. I, I want to turn a little bit to uh, some of the other things you said. CS uh, Central CSO oh, was doing. Yes. No, no, that's yes, good. Uh, this it. is this is good stuff. Uh, uh, forgot all uh, about it. <laughs> no, but uh, I want to hear about uh, public education. I'm mm -hmm. working with the Chicago Teachers Union, so uh, oh, I, good, I, good. I have an interest yeah, yeah, in that as well. Yeah. So, uh, um, but yes. Yeah, so, uh, what what kind of things are you doing uh, with uh, public education, and how does that? Yeah, look? yeah. Well, well, Central CSO. A lot of our members are. Uh, parents with children in the schools and teachers, right? And we saw that uh, LAUSD uh, was getting attacked by charter schools, you know, and they call it uh, something different, but it started getting a proliferation of private charter schools in East LA. And when, when Kip uh, Promesa wanted to uh, build a four-story building in the middle of Bull Heights, and started another elementary school, we decided to mobilize, because we already have four or five great 
elementary schools in Ball Heights, in addition to we already have four charter schools in the needed area where they wanted to end in, in a Catholic school, right? So we organized uh, protests, rallies, marches. We even sued KIPP to stop the city from allowing them to develop this private charter school in the middle of Ball Heights. And everybody said, you know, you're not going to win. You're up against corporate lawyers. You know, KIPP is a national uh, charter chain. And you can't go up against City Hall, right? Because we sued the, the planning department. Went to the planning department, the planning commission, then city council. And yep. they approved it, and even though we challenged it all the way. But we sued, we protested, and we won. We stopped Kip Promesa from building a new school there, right? But it didn't stop there. And right now we're working in East LA with Garfield High School, uh, where 10 years ago we defeated Green Dot wanted to come in and take over, take over the whole school and manage it because the charter forces had been able to uh, pass a uh, motion within the school district calling for so-called public school choice to identify schools that were so-called underperforming and put them up for bid to see who could manage them. Right, so Garfield High School 10 years ago was on the list, and Green Dot said, we'll, su we'll, we'll submit a proposal, we'll take it over, we'll manage it. And we fought, you know, we did march and a rally, and then we said, you know what? We will unite with the teacher union, the parents, and administration, and write our own proposal to stay locally managed and public LUSD versus to let it go outside to a Green Dot Charter School, and we won. You know, that was Garfield High School. Garfield's been doing great, you know, high uh, graduation rate, uh, many good uh, programs, engineering, music, sports, right? And um, what's happened now is that the end of eight, they come up with this fancy end of eight Esperanza High School that is already co-located at, a, at a, 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 a small high school. They bought an empty parking lot in East LA and they want to build a new high school with 16 classrooms and a block away from Garfield High School, right? So, um, to, you know, so we're opposing that right now. We have a lawyer, we've done a press conference and a rally at the site. We've marched from Garfield High School we're saying, we don't want a new high school a block away, especially a charter high school, because what they'll do, they'll take students from Garfield and all over East LA. And with students, it goes, the funding that goes with the student every daily attendance. And that would hurt the funding for Garfield High School that is doing great. Not only that, it's non-union, uh, 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 the Esperanza end of it is a non-union charter school, right? So we're opposing that right now. So, and then a few weeks ago, we stopped a co-location threat by another kid at a Sheridan Elementary School. So we're saying that, you know, that, uh, and people are saying, why do you do this? Because this is an attack on the democratic right to a public education where the teachers uh, are trained, are certified, and the parents have power and input when they go there. Uh, it's the Republican uh, capitalist approach to to attack a public uh, uh, Democrats education. Democrats, too. I mean, uh, oh. in Chicago, where I live, uh, Rahm Emanuel was 
Uh, oh. and, and was a main Harney Duncan. These are people who were main proliferators of charter wow. schools. Wow. And so, okay, uh, okay. but it's, you're, you're right in the sense, I, like I said, I'm from the Chicago Teachers Union, so I know a little, and I work with the charter schools. Mm -hmm. But um, it's uh, it's union busting, usually. Union busting. And it's, you know, it's a neoliberal plan to um, not uh, have mm -hmm. any kind of accountability. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like these private boards um, you know, many times the board members live in the suburbs. They don't. They don't live in the communities where the schools are. They're wealthy. You know, they may be. You know, taking uh, big salaries or trying to draw profits. And they want this government. They mm -hmm. want the private sector to run everything, right? To line their pockets. And we're up against the big, the big super rich in L.A. who keep promoting. There was a secret plan that Eli Broad, one of the richest men in L.A., had to uh, privatize more than 50% of the schools yeah. you saying, that came out, right? Yep. So, yeah, so the parents, uh, you know, the teacher, we work with the Teachers Union, United Teachers of LA, they're yep. strong, we're an ally of the UTLA, when they walked so out it's a, a good, strike. It's a good local there. Right? Yeah, it's a good local. They were on a strike a couple of years ago. We walked the picket line with them, went to all the rallies, you know, Centro CSO, in solidarity and, with you know, United Teachers of LA. We have actually Chicago up. Um, I'm not the one to take over your interview. No, go, go for it. <laughs> but <laughs> but we, we've uh, had uh, uh, in our, our union contract with the, the with the Board of Ed that there won't be any uh, charter growth you know, wow. for the life of the you know so that you got that in your yes so they, they can they can open a new one but then an old one has to close and so that kind of thing so it's, it won't be a growth mm -hmm. um, I like that and I so like that. yeah and and even we have uh, the charter school teachers that we represent. Uh, played a role nationally in getting our national union, the American Federation of Teachers, to pass a resolution that said we're opposed to charter expansion. And the reason the charter schools wow. wanted that is even the ones where you have a charter school that exists, they don't want you to pull resources away from the existing charter school either. And, and you know, many of our members of Centro CSO are teachers and are in UTLA. And, um, and they're part of the Human Rights Committee and they've been able to have uh, UTLA endorse the Chicano moratorium. That's good. Yeah, and also endorse the fight against the sheriff, the charter amendment fight. They've endorsed that. And when I say they have the House of Representatives, where there's several hundred teachers there every month, and they vote in a dialogue and debate. And I'm trying to remember what else they endorse. Yeah, and uh, the fight against uh, the charter schools. Oh, that's good. So, yeah, so it's an ongoing fight, you know, and that's actually uh, really uh, built Centro CSO. We, we got so big, we had to do committees, education committee, police brutality committee, and they're, and, and they get full. They, I mean, I mean, what I mean is they, they're, they've grown a lot. We have teachers no, it's, there, it's, yeah. It's good work you're doing. You're yeah, yeah, good. we've grown a lot. We've outgrown that we need to, you know. Let me let me move let me move to the, your your other area of work that you mentioned, uh, which is the immigrant rights work. Uh, can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that? What your your demands are there and your goals and how you organize immigrant rights work? Yeah, our demand is legalization for all. Start to stop the deportations, right? And it's an ongoing demand that we've taken on May Day marches every year. We have May Day in Bull Heights. That's our main demand. And I, I've been doing immigrant rights organizing for many years. My family's from Mexico. My, my, my father was a young man who was deported several times when he came to LA to work, right? I was, I lived in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico for the first six, seven years of my life, right? 
and I was born in El Paso, Texas. So they said, oh, you're, uh, they called me, they labeled me an anchor baby. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, yeah, in the uh, 2005, you know, the uh, Sensenbrenner was able to get a bill through Congress, you know, forget the exact number, but it, they, they call it the Sensenbrenner bill. Yep, yep sure, I remember this. You remember that? It, which would have criminalized being undocumented in the United States, right? And they were able to go to Congress. So we had a meeting in early 2006 with uh, many immigrant rights activists, and we said, let's have a march. Let's have a protest on March the 10th. And then the Chicago people came back to Chicago organized, and they, but the LA people we said, wait a minute, that's too early. Let's do March 25th. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened in the Chicago on March the 10th, uh, it was like half a million people. It was big. You were it there, was, right? Yes, yes, it was huge. It was huge. It was huge, yeah. Uh, it was the biggest march I've ever been in, I think. And it was just for one city. It wasn't a national march. I mean, it was yeah, uh, yeah. incredible. It was... Uh, uh -huh. But, um, and, it, and it changed things too, but yeah. It, it, we, it, yeah, so we heard about it. I got calls from, you know, I don't know if you called me Richard, but I think Joe. Sure, Joe, sure, uh, yeah, Joe, Joe Osbaker from SEIU. He was uh, so excited, we got thousands of us. I said, okay, 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 well, I heard about <laughs> it. So that means now we gotta do double, be in LA, right? <laughs> so sure enough, March 25th, with the help of all the organizations, the union, and also the DJ, Spanish-speaking uh, talk show, or DJs, you know, announced it. So uh, March 25th, I remember showing up at eight o'clock in the morning downtown, when I thought it was early, and it was already full. Incredible. The street was full from north to south. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. And it was a massive, we had to take a different street to go up to City Hall, because Broadway was already, you couldn't move. Yep. I was so packed, you couldn't move, I had to go down up spring, you know, and I was there with workers, with immigrant rights activists, and uh, that was the kickoff of what they called the mega marches of the 2006. Yep. So then for May 1, we said, let's do it again. Yep. And again, International Workers Day. Our International Workers How was it in Chicago, May Day? Were you guys oh, it was huge. It was, it was big? bigger than the March one. Oh, was it really? Yes, oh, it was huge. God. And it was yeah. big. And the labor unions came out in much bigger numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I think uh, the, the March, uh, I mean, the, the, the mega march in March, um, caught a lot of people off guard, yeah, you know, yeah. not, you know, not from the Latino communities because right, they, right. they were aware, but a mm -hmm. lot of the organizing was done on Spanish radio and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Right, right. And so, uh, but the unions, uh, you know, they, they, they bounced back and they, they turned out in bigger they numbers. Said. And so the, the same people were there, but plus more allies and good, more other good. people. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That, well, that's what happened May 1st. But what happened, uh, the movement is so big in L.A. that we had two May Day marches in <laughs> 2006. We had the more grassroots, independent, you know, militant one in the, in the morning uh, downtown, March City Hall. And then the unions had another one on more mid-Wilshire, going from kind of like MacArthur Park to mid-Wilshire, and that was another mega. And I, w I went to both, because <laughs> I had, <laughs> happened to be working at SCIU uh, County Worker Union, and uh, the uh, president, a black Panamanian guy, the Hondo Stevens, said, we got to support it, we got to go all out, so we did, you know. So two mega marches on May 1st, 26. 2006. 
well, the thousands. Let, let me ask you a little mm-hmm. bit. You know, you've been organizing in the, mm-hmm. you know, in LA and in the Chicano neighborhoods for many years now. But you, you mentioned a couple times through this interview about uh, it pops up about organized labor. What's the importance of uh, having good relationships and working with unions, and and uh, why why do you even bother to do that? Well, I mean, all Chicanos immigrants are working people, right? And and many of them in, in, in many big locals like HRE Local Eleven, the Home Care Workers SEIU, right? And you know, uh, unions of course fight for working people, and uh, unions uh, represent the interests of working people. And in the United States, you got millions and millions of working people that are immigrants, you know. And I know in the, in the, you know, years ago, uh, some of the unions used to be run by older white men and some had some racist practices of not allowing blacks or Latinos or Asians or women to be part of the membership or the leadership. But that's changed. I think labor unions now understand the importance of uh, the immigrants, you know, whether it's from Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America, and Mexico, they have to be part of the union. And that the unions need to take on the struggle for immigrant rights, especially for uh, legalization. So unions, you know, are an, uh, an organization of the working people, and I think they, you know, they need to fight the the, the capitalists. They need to fight the one percent, represent the interest of all working people. Now that makes sense. Uh, I mean, let me ask you also. We're we're winding down here, but uh, um, the. Uh, the issue of uh, self-determination is something that you brought up early in our interview here. And uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, uh, what that is and why that's important? I mean, it seems like you, a lot of what differentiates uh, some of the work you've done in the Chicano community from, you know, maybe more conservative is, is that this idea of uh, power. And I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit. No, absolutely. I mean, it's a political uh, um analysis that you know in order to be free we need to have power you know and what is power for chicanos it's self-determination and the united nations human rights charter recognizes that oppressed people oppressed nations have a right to self-determination so i haven't it is my view that the african-american native american chicanos were oppressed within in this country they exploit our labor you know we're denied our culture uh, racist uh supremacy keeps us down supremacy keeps us down right and i mean there was a massacre uh, recently that occurred here in, in texas right but by the young man who was mentally ill but there was a racist that attack in el paso that killed 23 uh, uh chicanos because he was there to, to he was looking for mexicans to kill right so self-determination is the right to control our own destiny uh not our own and control our own land. In the Southwest, Chicanos evolved as a people, right? We have a common history, culture, and we're the working class. We uh, do the agricultural work. We do the mine, the copper mine. We do the ranching, the factories, the oil rigs, you know. We're the majority of the working class, and I firmly believe that the land belongs to people who work it, right? And um, the... Um, the uh, yeah, I didn't go into a long historical context, but since the Mexican-American War, where the Southwest uh, was indigenous and colonized by the Spanish, 
they had developed a new nation, the Chicano nation, especially after the Mexican-American War, where we were occupied by the racist U.S. Army. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, we are proud of our roots of our family being from Mexico, but we acknowledge that we live in the U.S. racist system and we need to fight for our rights as Chicano people, our language rights, our educational rights, our political rights, but our right to our own nation, the Chicano nation of Astla. And we respect and acknowledge, acknowledge and fight for the sovereign rights of the Navajo Nation and other indigenous nations. And we are allies and in this fight against U.S. imperialism. Well, that's, that's a note to end on there. Uh, thank you so much, Carlos Montes. Uh, Richard, thank and, you so much. You have some great questions. Thank this, you. This has been a pleasure. I, I, I truly awesome. Thank you. Wow, that was Carlos Montes for you all, a founder of the Brambores and giant of the Chicano movement at large. My name is Angel Naranjo. I've just started my senior year at the Little Village Londell High School, and I've got to say, it's always amazing to be on the receiving end of such knowledge, especially coming from someone as experienced as Carlos, whose work has helped pave the road for young people such as myself. As someone who's grown up in Little Village, Chicago, or we who live here call La Vita, I can't help but identify and be inspired by the Chicano movement in the Southwest. The historic East LA walkouts that mobilized over 10,000 high school students and the historic militancy of the Chicano moratorium. That history is mine and it keeps me grounded. But Carlos reminds us, history isn't over yet. We understand that the people and the people alone are the motive force in making world history and that our protests aren't really protests if they're acceptable to our oppressors. It's on this understanding that the students of Little Village Londo High School have formed an organization named LVLHS Fight Back, which I'm a proud and leading member of. A militant student movement is what we want, and revolution is our goal. Now, I want every listener across the country to raise their fist and repeat after me. Si se puede! Si se puede! Thank you so much, Angel Naranjo. Uh, Little Village High School, uh, Chicago's Little Village Lawndale High School Fight Back. And uh, you can reach them uh, on Instagram at LVLHS Fight Back. Um, also, thank you, Carlos Montes. Uh, Carlos, you can uh, find out about him at www.carlosmontes.org. Also, we're going to put in the show notes all the contact information for Central CSO. If you want to reach Fightback Radio, you can reach us at richard.fightbackradio at gmail.com. Also, I want to thank our production team of Vince Olson, Shane Tremley, and Dodd McLaughlin. So thank you all. Uh, so for the entire Fight Back Radio team, I'm Richard Berg saying until next time, all power to the people.